Lessons in Tanya. The Tanya of Rabbi Schneir Zalman of Liadi. Taught by Rabbi Ben-Zion Krasniansky. Tanya's text elucidated by Rabbi Yosef Weinberg. Middle of chapter 11, page 975. So it is only through the words and the letters that a person reveals what is going on inside of him and that leads a person to speech and then to action. Because you don't act before you think and, and then you speak about it and then you act on it. So in order, the words and the letters give the emotion shape, a shape, a form. And it's only when you're able to think about your emotion and you're able to understand it and describe it, then you're able to think about it and you're able to speak about it and you're able to do something about it. So too, although creation, the motivation of creation, creation it comes about through God's emotional attributes, but there cannot be any revelation of these attributes unless there is words or letters. Hashem's letters, the divine letters that express these emotions and communicate these emotions and reveal these emotions and bring it out into, into reality. For example, Hashem created light. Where does light come from? Light comes from Hashem's emotional attribute of chesed, of love. Light has the features, the characteristics of love, giving indiscriminately. Light is very effusive. Light is generous. The same light will illuminate the palace and will illuminate the garbage dump. Indiscriminate. It's warm. It's attractive. Um, expansive. expansive. So, but how do you get from God's emotional attribute to light? So Hashem had to form the words and the letters, the letters of or of, of, of light or Aleph, Vav, Resh. So it's only these words and these letters that are able to convey and to communicate and to express and to reveal and to bring into action, bring light into action. That light should become an entity. And that's the utterance. There should be light, the very first utterance. There should be light. God said there should be light. And the first day God said there should be light and there was light. So although the first day was actually primarily the emotional attribute of love, but to get from love in order to create an entity, the entity of light, Hashem had to speak and bring into words and bring into letters the, uh, um, the attribute of, of kindness, of love. And so that's the analogy of words. Of course, God doesn't speak and there are no physical words, there are no physical letters, but just like in the human analogy, it's only through words and letters that you're able to communicate and you're able to convey and to express your emotion and that leads you to action. You say God doesn't speak, but in the Torah he spoke to Moses. I think he doesn't, it's not physical. The Torah, that God doesn't have a mouth and he doesn't... But the term speak is human. Ah, exactly, because that's the human analogy, just like the human analogy. The purpose of speech, the purpose of words, the purpose of letters are... Although words and letters are, are inert, words and letters are just vehicles. Just but at some point, there has to be something physical. It creates. God created something physical. 
He created something physical. But the words and letters itself are, are, are spiritual. It's divine speech. It's God's speech. That's how he starts off the chapter, that even the divine speech is also godly. And it has the ability to create. So not only is God, God's emotional attributes godly and divine, and God and his attributes are one, but even God's speech is also divine. It's God's speech. So it, never left, it never left the divine realm. What did Moshe hear? But the purpose, Moshe heard God speak. The Jewish people heard God speak at Mount Sinai. Their ears heard God, God speak. But the, the, it's divine speech. And that's where their souls passed down in ecstasy. They were overwhelmed. They became nullified. Their existence was completely nullified because they experienced the divine firsthand. So even when God is speaking, even though speech is the most external part of a person and the most superficial part of a person, but nevertheless, it's your speech. So even though, even though so, so too, when we say God speaks, and speech in comparison to the content of the speech, how can you compare the speech to the content of the speech? The content of the speech is internal, your personality, your character, your emotions, your, your love, your, 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 your hatreds, your, your things, and your, your, understand, your comprehension. These are all internal parts, while speech is seemingly very external. Speech is interchangeable. Speech is external. Speech is just inert. It's just a vehicle. It's just a communication to speak to yourself through thought and to speak to others. So how can you compare the content to the word? But nevertheless, even the speech and even the word, it's your word and it's your speech. It comes from you. It's your words. It's your speech. So too with God, that although in comparison to the content, which is the divine emotional attribute, speech is the lowest attribute of God. It's like the most external, the most superficial. It's the point of communication and contact between God and creation. God creates the world through words because words is for the, other, for the benefit of someone outside of yourself, or the other person. In God's case, it's God's words that creates the other person. Without God's words, there is no other person. God has no one to speak to. There's no one to talk to. There's no one, no one other than God. There's no other reality but God. But it's God's words that creates an entity that senses itself as being separate, as being independent, as being egotistical. So how can you compare God's words to God's, so to speak, to, to God's emotional attributes, to God's personality and character, so to speak? He says, but nevertheless, these are God's words. And they're divine. And they're inseparable from God. And, and they, because the words express the emotions, so the words are, are just like the emotions. God's emotional attributes are inseparable from God, so too the words, God's divine words, are also inseparable from God, and they are divine. And that is why the, the divine letters, the Hebrew letters in the Torah, the divine letters actually have the power to create. God creates the world with the divine letters, with the, the Hebrew language. These are the building blocks of creation. They actually have the power to create. God speaks and something comes into existence. God said there should be light and light came into existence. Is there any significance to the fact that the hay was added to the name of Abraham and Sarah? Yeah, sure, absolutely. You know, like, in terms of like, I, I think the world was created for the letter hay or I heard something, I'm not sure, something about the letter hay. 
Absolutely. Um, the letter He is versus the Yud. Sarai. The Yud is a point. The smallest letter of all the letters. He is very expensive. It's three dimensions. So He enabled Sarah to communicate, to give birth. The Yud is very internal. It's very deep. It's very profound. It's the subconscious. It's the creative ability. So it's all internal. There's no communication to outside, to anything outside. In order to give birth, in order to reveal, in order to... Hashem had to add the hay. By changing it to a hay, Hashem enabled Sarah to be able to give birth, in order to reveal, in order to communicate. The same is with Avram. The word Avram, Kabbalistically, is made up of two words. Av, Ram. Av, the father which refers to wisdom, which is the creative ability, which is the father of the whole conscious, conscious world, begins with creative spark. Ram means it's elevated, it's, it's transcendent, it's removed, it's, it's so elevated. It's the highest level of human consciousness. So it's so remote, it's so abstract, it's so elevated. And by adding a hey to Avram, making, changing his name to Avraham, Hashem enabled Avraham to be able to begin to communicate, to begin to teach, to begin to publicize, to begin to be able to reach out to others. And, and, and really this was an elevation for Avraham because to be able to communicate, you have to understand the subject matter much, much better. You have to have a much deeper, much truer understanding of the subject matter. <clears throat> The teacher who can communicate, it's not because he's so deep. It's because he's not deep enough. The teacher who is able to communicate because he's so deep that he's able to communicate clearly in a simple language. All the world classics are on a ninth grade level. If you meet a professor who's highfalutin and no one understands him because he doesn't understand either. If you don't understand, he can't explain it. So if someone has to hide behind highfalutin language and talk in university-level language and no one understands, it's because he himself doesn't understand. Einstein could speak to a five-year-old and could be crystal clear. It's the person who's a little befuddled and bemuddled in his own mind that doesn't have a crystal clear understanding of the subject. It's not a master. The master could speak to a five-year-old child. The real master. The one who's not a master could only speak in a very highfalutin, esoteric, abstract language that no one understands, including himself. But someone who's clear thinking, someone who's crystal clear, could explain to a five-year-old child. So the fact that Avraham, his name was changed, is because he was elevated. Hashem elevated him. That he reached the level that now he was able to reach out and even to communicate, even to... Simply. The same concept. She was able, she was able to give birth. She was able to reveal. The act of birth is a revelation, a expansion, opening up. Before that, she was very, right, very, the Yud, very, a dot, a point. And there was no, there was no uh, ability to reveal or expression or expansion. Like changing her name to the hay, adding the hay, she was able to, she was able to um, give birth and extend and expand. Um, so that's, that's the name of a change. But the, yes, every letter, Every letter 
changes a name. When a person is very ill, you add a name because it's a new channel. It's a new channel of life. We add a name of Chayim, of life. You want to draw down a new channel, a new energy. Because everything is in the Hebrew language. Everything, this is the divine language and God creates the world. These are the building blocks of all creation. Your Hebrew name, that's why your Hebrew name is so important. Because it's, it's, that's the channel of Hashem. That's how Hashem is uh, creating you and Hashem is sustaining you and Hashem is guiding you. It's all through these, this energy. So the divine letters, the divine words are the actual building blocks of creation. So the divine energies. But, they, but the words channel the energy. The words contain the energy and allow the energy to come into an entity. Just like in the human analogy. Emotion, if you just had emotion, but you had no words to contain the emotion, to describe the emotion to yourself, and then to describe it to others, and then to lead, to lead you into action, you would, never, it would, you, could never, you would never lead you to action. So the words convey the emotions and bring, lead it into action. So too, it's the divine words which come from the divine emotion. But these words are able to convey the emotion and bring it into action. They're able to take God's emotional attribute of love and convey it into light. Suddenly light is an expression, is a creation from God's emotional attribute of love. Because it has the same quality, the same idea. The same. And then also you have, for example, he says, if you have a different name, a different letters... You come up with a different entity, although they share the same source. also comes from the emotional attribute of love. You have water. Water also has the same quality. Water is giving. Water is life-sustaining. It's nourishing. It's nurturing. Water connects things like a glue. Water finds the lowest spot, just like someone who loves to give, loves to help, and whoever there's a need loves to fill that need. Water will always fill the lowest spot. And so the nature of water is also love and kindness. The opposite of fire. Fire is strength. Fire uh, fragments and tears apart. And fire is the exact opposite. Fire burns and water, water is, is connects. So it's it's. But here is also uh, shares the same source, like light, which comes from the emotional attribute of love, but it's an entire different entity. This is water. This is light. Because it has different names, different letters, different channels. So therefore, it creates a different entity, a different expression, a different form, a different expression of the, of the emotional attribute of love and kindness. What element expresses the Nura? What element expresses... That's Aish. That's the exact opposite. Well, fire is... Fire. Even though it, its nature is to... Yeah, but that, that is fire. fire. Fire is elevation. Oh. That's Gevura. What is strength? Oh. Strength comes Strength comes because strength limits. Why does strength limit or strength takes apart? And, um, for example, the rain comes down very hard. Or the blood. The blood within a person. That's Gevura. That's strength. It's life. It's vitality. It's strength. But sometimes you have to be careful because if, the, if you have too much, the blood is too intense. You can end up with a stroke. Mm. You can shatter the vessel. Mm-hmm. You have to be careful. When something is intense, you have to make sure that the vessel is able to receive it. Mm. So therefore, therefore you, you start limiting. Are you worthy? 
can't just give you indiscriminately. I'll destroy you. Hashem will give too much rain. <laughs> It'll just destroy you. So you have, to, you have to judge. You have to see if you're able to... Are you able to receive? Hi, right. 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 Welcome. On page uh, 977. So you have to judge if you're able to... Um, if you're able to... If you're able to uh, receive, if you're able, and that's why Gavura is very limiting. Gavura is very strict. Are you worthy? That's like the teacher who's very tough. Are you worthy? Are you ready? Are you up to par? Demands excellence. Love is giving indiscriminately. You're worthy, you're not worthy. I'll just give you. I'm giving. But the strength is very demanding. You have to have vessels, you have to have vehicles, you have to be, you have to, um, you have to limit, you restrain. Because if you give too much, you're going to destroy. If you give a child something that's inappropriate, you'll destroy them. You're not helping them. Oh, I'll give you whatever you want. You'll destroy them. You have to, a child needs boundaries, a child needs limits. If you place a, a kid in a grade, in a two grade that's too high for him, you'll destroy his mind. You're not helping him. You give something, someone that's inappropriate, you give a child a, a four or five course dinner. <laughs> you give a baby a five course dinner, you kill the baby. But I love him, I want him to have the best. <laughs> French cuisine and everything, ribeye and yeah, but you'll kill the baby, we can't handle it. You have to be very discriminative. What are you worthy of? What are you able to receive? And therefore, you're very demanding. I don't let anyone in. Are you worthy? Are you up to par? Only demand excellence. I'm not just going to throw the doors open and everyone can come in. I'm so loving and kind. I'm going to dumb down standards and everyone can come in and everyone is welcome and everything is... What do you mean? That, that's, that's not strength then. Strength is the opposite. I'm going to put guards at the door. Fences. Are you ready? Are you worthy? I'm demanding. Live up to it. Are you, living, are you pushing yourself? Are you worthy of it? Are you, are you, have you reached excellence? Are you able to receive this gift? Are you worthy of receiving this? Are you able to handle it? So it's very intense. Kavura is intense. Fire. It's intense. It's powerful. But it said that God first created the world with justice and then felt it was too much. It sounds like, you know, he'd start with love and then say, okay, I have to limit this. But instead he was tough and then said, no, this is too tough. So now I... Why did he start with Kavura? Because we learned earlier, because the whole purpose of creation was that God wanted that we should, we have our independent being and we should willingly enter into a relationship with God. You know, we have choice, we have freedom of choice and we have challenges and we have difficulties and godliness is hidden, godliness is concealed, we have healthy egos and we have to work our way back, we have to climb the mountain. God wanted us to climb the mountain. But if it would have only been Gevura, then it would have been a Mount Everest. Mm. How many people are going to climb Mount Everest? Mm. One, in a, one in a million? Mm. Not even? Mm. How many people are going to climb? How many people are going to make it? So if the world was only Gevura, the concealment would have been so thick 
that, that it would be impossible for us to achieve our goal. The goal was not to hide for hiding's sake. The goal was to hide in order that we should transform the darkness, in order that we should overcome our handicaps, overcome our limitations, and climb the mountain. But, but God saw that we wouldn't be able to handle it. It would be too, too hidden, too concealed. So therefore, He illuminated the darkness. He had mercy. He illuminated the darkness through the miracles, the wonders, and the Torah, and all the tzaddikim, up till the Rebbe. And He illuminated the darkness, and therefore... He showed us grace and illuminated darkness, so it made it easier for us to be able to detect godliness, to sense godliness. So this gives us strength to be able to overcome, rise to our challenge. But even then we see how difficult it is. Can you imagine if we didn't have that? We didn't have all these miracles, we didn't have all these revelations of godliness, and we didn't have the tzaddikim, and we didn't have the rebbe's, and we didn't have, I mean, then it will be, you'll forget about it, it will be almost impossible. Even now, look how difficult it is. And we're still struggling. So Hashem had mercy and He says, you know, although that is the goal, the goal is because in the divine attributes, the attributes are not separate. What appears to be strength and restraint and toughness is really also love. Because that's the only way the world could exist. If there was no, sen- if there was no hiding, if God was not hidden, then it would defeat the whole purpose of creation. The whole purpose of creation was that we should be independent, we should sense that we're separate from God, and we on our own should be able to overcome that, and we should willingly choose, deliberately and willingly choose to enter into a relationship with God, and to connect with God. And that's the whole meaning of life. That's the whole purpose behind the hiding and the concealment. So it's really, it's for our good. It's really all for positive purposes. It's really the ultimate act of love. It's like a parent hiding from a child. Parent hides from a child. Parent allows a child to fall. Parent allows a child to make all the mistakes. Because the parent is doing the child the greatest favor. Otherwise you have parents who never leave go of their children. And the children, the children are 70 years old and they're still, they're still living with their parents. So this is the ultimate kindness when the parents are able to cut the umbilical cord and the parents, as painful as it is, allow the child to be on their own, allow the child to fall, allow the child to make mistakes. But granting them the biggest gift they can give them is independence. That they can become their own person. They can, they can flourish, they can grow, they can learn, and, they can, and life, they can own their own life. So to Hashem, it's the ultimate kindness. Yes, it appears Hashem is hiding, Hashem is concealing, but really, what's the purpose behind it? The purpose is really all positive. It's an act of love. It enables us to exist as independent beings. And that's the biggest gift that God can give us. Because God is independent, the only one who's really independent. And instead of us being like angels, angelic and heavenly, who are totally dependent beings, and have zero, zero independence, and therefore everything they do is really almost meaningless because, I mean, of course, they worship God. And what's the point? Of course, they have no choice. <laughs> I mean, Godliness is overwhelming, and godliness, there's nothing else, there's no other reality. God gave us the ultimate gift. He hid Himself. He gave us a world filled with challenges, filled with obstacles. But everything that we do is independent. He gave us the gift we, we can become equals and partners with God. We can become godlike. We can become independent. We take the initiative. It's our accomplishment. We own our lives. We own the good things that we do. We own it. It's our decision. 
after struggling and overcoming difficulties, we own that. It's ours. And that's the most precious gift that God can give us. That we become partners, equal partners in the creation. We become godlike. We become godly. We become givers and creators. And we take initiative and we do things. We give tzedakah and we, we create good things. And we do good. That's the ultimate gift that God can give us. To become godly and godlike. But the only way to achieve it is through hiding. Through concealment. That's why God wanted to make the whole world concealed. Because then it would have been even more, a greater accomplishment. It's so hidden and it's so dark. And yet, even in such a world, we're able to transform that darkness into light. And God says, hey, listen, <laughs> it's too much. They won't be able to handle it. As it is, they can't handle it. So he threw in a lot of light. And he shined a lot of cracks in the wall, a lot of light. The light should come through. The light should penetrate. The miracles and people like the Rebbe and Sadikim and... Well, you know, so, so when a Jew sees a miracle and you experience a miracle, it like hits home. There's a God in this world. It's a wake-up call. It's a reminder. And that gives you strength to be able to choose the right thing and do the wise thing and do the right thing. And, and so Hashem threw in, he had Rachmanus and he mixed it with, with the kindness. But initially, yes, he wanted to create the world through, through Elohim, through hiding, because that was the whole purpose. But really, it's the ultimate act of love. The ultimate act of kindness. So when Mashiach comes, then oh, Mashiach will come. Will, Mashiach will come through our effort, through our transformation, through all the thousands of years, through the darkness of exile that the Jew has been transforming darkness into light, challenge and opportunity, questions into answers, bitterness into sweetness, negativity into positive. That. As a result, Mashiach will come. It's a result of our efforts, a result of our work. So we are partners. We made this happen. We're not just bystanders, we're not just passive observers. But we are equal partners. We paid the price. It's our blood, our sweat, our sacrifice, our faith and hope and trust and joy and confidence and good deeds that brought Will bring, that is bringing Mashiach, that is bringing all this about. So we are partners in this. So then when that happens, it's our own, it's our achievement, it's our accomplishment. We feel like we own it. It's not like it's handed to us on a silver platter, which the Zohar calls bread of shame. Things, anything that's handed to us on a silver platter, it's a bread of shame. It's like in heaven. The soul was in heaven. It's an insult. Heaven is an insult. Heaven is, everything is handed to you on a silver platter. You're in the king's palace. You know, the royal palace. Everything is handed to you on a silver platter. Everything is easy. Everything is obvious. Everything is simple, self-evident. Everything is transparent. There's no clouds. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, shade. Everything is crystal clear. Everything is illuminated. That's an insult. It's a slap in the face for the soul. I didn't earn anything. I didn't achieve anything. It's not honest. It's not real. But the soul comes down into this world. And, you know, every step that we make, every move that we make is an accomplishment. It's an effort, it takes effort. It's a personal achievement. It takes sacrifice. We transform bit by bit, day by day, step by step, mitzvah by mitzvah. We transform physical matter into spirituality, into godliness. We transform darkness into light. Then we've earned it, we've accomplished. It's our accomplishment. We're partners. Hashem gave us the greatest gift imaginable. Only God is a creator. Angels are not creators. Only, only human beings have that gift 
No other creature in the entire universe has that gift. Not the sun, and not the moon, and not the stars, and not the angels, and not animals. No other creature on earth has that gift that a human being has. The ability to choose, the ability to create, to be partners with God in creation. To be, to be like a God, godly, godlike. That's the ultimate gift that Hashem is. So it's the ultimate kindness. Hashem's hiding is the ultimate kindness. Like the parent stepping back, watching the child. Can you imagine how painful it is for the parent to watch the child bump and fall? and hurt themselves, but the parent restrains themselves. That, that's gavura, strength, restraint. The teacher who pushes, pushes a student and stretches them and pushes them to the edge. It's the ultimate act of love because he believes in the student. He loves the student. So he, he doesn't accept mediocrity. I want the student to stretch. I want the student to be the best they can be. I want them to excel. I want them to be, surpass themselves. I want them to really tap into their potential and live up their potential. So yes, it appears uh, to be, an, uh, it's like tough love. It's, uh, the teacher is tough on me and the teacher is unforgiving and unyielding and he, he pushes and un, you know, relentlessly, but it's really, that's the ultimate act of love. It seems that way. <laughs> oh, that's why Hashem has Rahman. Sometimes human beings don't know. Sometimes human beings are too tough and they don't know. You have to have love and you have to have a balance. Hashem saw that it would be too much. Yes, that is the goal and that is the purpose and that is the ultimate act of love. But it, it would just be too much. We couldn't handle it. Even now we can't handle it. Yeah, exactly. So therefore Hashem mixed in Rachmanus. He mixed in Rachmanus. So there, was, there is revelation of Godliness. From time to time, Hashem shows us some miracles. Once in a while, Hashem shows us uh, some open, obvious miracles. If we're all united, so even if someone is trying valiantly, then you've got someone who, oh. you know, and then you... Now you hit it on the nail. Now you hit it on the nail. Now you hit it on the nail. The Rebbe said, he once said that when the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, before he passed away, he said, what's going to happen? He says, firstly, there's children. He had many children. His youngest child became the next Rebbe. So even if he passed away, there was another Rebbe to take care and to lead and to illuminate. and And then he said, the other option is, he says, when Hasidim will be together, will be united, you'll be able to overcome everything. So the Rebbe concluded. He said, in our generation, we don't have the option number one, because mm. the Rebbe had no children. So all we're left with is option number two. Is if Jews would be united, if Hasidim would be united, then we have all the strength in the world we need. Because even if one person, one Jew has a bad day, the other Jews having a good day. Mm. We all have our cycles. So if we're united, we strengthen each other. And we draw strength together. And when Jews are united, you know, no force in the universe could stop us. So that's where we draw strength. That's, that's the answer. We have the key. The key to bringing godliness into the world and to strengthening and to finding inspiration is the unity. We strengthen each other. And... That's the challenge. That's the greatest challenge we have. That's why, that's why that was so devastating what happened in Israel is because mm-hmm. it was Jew against Jew. Mm-hmm. It was Jew expelling another Jew. Instead of Jews uniting and fighting our enemies, we turned one Jew against another Jew. And that's devastating because then, then the, you know, that's the only strength we have. Is the only light we have is unity. 
When there's unity, there's light, there's illumination, there's blessings. There's... But when you pit one Jew against another Jew and you have politics and you have divisiveness and you have a Jew and politics, is a lethal combination. Because the whole strength of a Jew is unity. And politics divides. Conservative, liberal, right-wing, left-wing, these are all artificial barriers. But, you know, we have a Jewish soul. It doesn't matter if you're liberal or you're conservative. You have a Jewish soul in all one. So the right hand and the left hand, the, right, the liberal and the conservative, what? It's, 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 it's inseparable. The right hand is going to slap the left hand, the left hand is going to slap the other hand. It's going to evict the left hand, the left hand is evicting the right hand. It's absurd. So that's the challenge. That's the challenge that the Rebbe left us. The last Fabrengan the Rebbe spoke before he had the stroke was in the parish of Ayakel where Moshe gathered all the Jewish people together. And that's what the Rebbe spoke about, unity. Because that's the only, there is no other answer. The only way we're going to bring that illumination today, we don't have physically with our flesh and blood, with our flesh and eyes, we don't see the Rebbe. We don't have that revelation we had since the time of Avram, since the time of Adam. We always had the tzaddik, you could see it with his, your own eyes, and that was an inspiration. You needed inspiration. You went to 770, so, so the Rebbe in action, it gave you an inspiration. Now you don't see it. What's a, where, where, where are you going to get that illumination? Where are you going to get that, that Rachmanus? That Hashem mixed in the Rachmanus, the divine illumination. So it's unity. There's unity. Then there's blessing. And then there's illumination. And then, there, then there's, that's the divine illumination. But Hashem saw that you can't, only strength is not going to work. You need kindness. You need love. You need, you need compassion. It's a beautiful story. There was a Jew... He was on a business trip and he sees this whole commotion and he runs over and he sees that this person fainted. What happened was this person borrowed money from all his neighbors and he came to the city to do business. And, and uh, you know, he, he, he lost his wallet. And uh, he was devastated and he fainted. He realized that he, he can't come back home and he lost all his money and plus he owes and who's going to believe him? They'll, they'll, they'll say he stole his money. And every time they revived him, he reminded himself what happened, he fainted again. Because they, they told him that it was, uh, was something happened. Anyway, this rabbi comes over to him and tells him, and it happened like a few times, they couldn't revive him. The rabbi tells him, next time you revive him, tell him that it's a false alarm. Someone found your wallet, it's, it's all okay, you have it. That's exactly what they told him. And a minute later, someone comes by and he yeah, found his wallet. Into the Rebbe. He says, Rebbe, are you a, a miracle worker? What's, what's this divine inspiration? Or are you, what are you, a, a holy person, a prophet? How did you know? He says, no, it's very simple. God does not give a Jew or any person a test they can't handle. I saw that this person can't handle it. He just couldn't handle it. He just, it was overwhelming. He just fainted. Every time they revived him, he remembered he just couldn't take it. I saw this is too much for him. He couldn't handle it. I knew that this, was, this couldn't be true. This wasn't his test. Because he can't, he can't deal with it. Hashem does not give a person a test to take an eye. That's why Hashem had Rachmanus. And he mixed in, when he created the world, he mixed in Rachmanus. He mixed in that the world should not be so penetrated, so dark. There should be some light Although it appears to be that this moment right before Mashiach, Hashem brought <laughs> the most intense darkness the world has ever experienced before. But this must be the last moment. Um, and uh, surely Hashem has Rahmanus and He's going to illuminate this darkness.
Years ago, someone explained the British thing to me using an example. Um, and I, I want to know if that's how you see it also. Um, but there are times where we'll, we'll, we'll be kind, show, kindness to, show kindness to people, and sometimes rather than showing appreciation, um, we're just accepting it. Then at times they could be actually very cruel in return, or. Well, I mean, the nature of kindness is you give to someone indiscriminately, whether they're worthy or not worthy. And it's more a self-expression of you. So it doesn't matter if the person is able to receive or not able to receive, if it's a genuine kindness. And again, a genuine kindness. Mm-hmm. There's kindness that's not really kindness, it's just weakness. This kindness where a person is just, uh, you know, just wants to be loved, and therefore they think that, you know, if I'm going to... I'll do anything for people to like me. That's not kindness. That's weakness. That's a person who has no, uh, no. That's a lack of self-esteem. That has nothing to do with kindness. But a genuine kindness, where a person is very, is just doing it out of love. He just loves to give and loves to share. And if the other person is not worthy and the other person is not ready, you know, that's his problem. But uh, it doesn't stop me. So then, then you're not so, you're not so offended. You're not so taken aback. It's not. You know, you, you, you don't lose your balance because the other person the other person doesn't receive. So it's really... If it's true kindness... If it's true kindness. You don't really look to receive anything. Right. If it's true kindness, you, know, you don't look to receive anyway. It's, it's not about... Right. I mean, yeah. But if a person's kindness is coming from for other reasons... See, a lot of people think they're kind, but really it's all... It's, it's nothing to do with kindness. It's just insecurity. and You just want to be loved and liked, and therefore they... That's not genuine. That's not coming from inside. That's coming from a very dysfunctional place. And therefore, and that usually does not generate good feelings either, because you really you're giving to the wrong people, and all you're getting back is empty negativity. So it's it's, it's that, that that's nothing to do with kindness, that's insecurities. But genuine kindness, uh, right? Genuine kindness is selfless, and genuine kindness is giving, and and um, so that's that's and that you're not affected by the other person. So that's the two. He brings two examples of things that were created from Hashem's emotional attribute of kindness that we find that it was there during the first day of creation. Hashem said there should be light, and there was light, and then the world was filled with water. So again, water existed the first day. So water, again, is a, a result of the attribute of Hashem's divine kindness and love. But each one of them have their own name, their own Hebrew letters, and their own Hebrew name, because they are distinct entities. Uh, water has its properties, and and, and the light has, has its properties. Uh, so it's the v- letters and the words, the Hebrew letters and the Hebrew words that convey the emotional attribute and bring it into action. And that's the function of the divine utterances. That's what the Torah means when we say that God speaks. That God spoke, and He brought his emotional attributes into letters, expressed it in letters and words, and therefore was able to create, created this physical entity with its unique entity called water, unique entity called light. So I think we're in the bottom of 976, that where we left off? Accordingly, all life forces and powers which issue from God's holy emotive attributes to the lower world to create them ex nihilo, and to give them life and sustain them are called holy letters. These are the flow of the life force from his will and his wisdom and his emotive attributes to bring worlds into being and to give them, and give them life. 
These worlds are created by the letter these worlds are created by the letters are of two kinds, hidden worlds unrevealed, which come into existence and live and are sustained by concealed powers and life forces, like, for example, the letters of thought in the human soul. Just as the letters of each man's thought are concealed from others, these divine powers are similarly concealed from created beings. From them were created the hidden worlds, and worlds revealed which were created and lived from the revelation of the hidden powers and life forces called letters of thought. When these letters of thought are in a state of revelation in order to give light to the revealed worlds, they are called utterances, and the word of God and the breath of his mouth. Like, for example, the letters of a man's speech which reveal to his listeners what was concealed and hidden in his heart, Likewise, the divine letters of speech are a revelation of the force that grants existence and infuses life into those created beings that are, are of the category of worlds revealed. Okay, so he said that there are two types of words, two types of letters, two types of communication, of speaking. There is an internal speaking where you speak to yourself through thought. Thought is really a form of speech. You're speaking to yourself. You think in words. You don't love in words. Two plus two is four is beyond words. A concept is beyond words. A pure concept, pure comprehension. And pure emotion is beyond words. A pure experience. But when you think, you think in words. But thought is for yourself. You, you communicate to yourself. You're speaking to yourself. Words are in order to speak to others. You don't, if you're alone, you don't have to speak. You think. If you like to be alone, you think. You speak. Speaking is a social act. Speaking is, you speak to others. You reveal what's going on. You reveal what you're thinking. You reveal what you're feeling. You reveal what you're experiencing. You reveal what you're, you, your understanding, your insights, your will, your pleasure. You're revealing it to others. So speech and, and uh, thought are only, only, the only difference is, is degree. They're both the same quality, basically. They're both, both basically speech. They're basically communi- words and letters. The difference is you speak to yourself, you speak to others. Um, of course, the, when you speak to yourself, it's internal. No one knows what you're thinking. Some people speak and no one knows what they're speaking. <laughs> but when you speak to yourself, no one knows what you're thinking. It's internal. Um, you think much quicker than you speak. If every thought that you have may take you five minutes to think, you may need a half hour to explain it. You know, some people can definitely speak before they think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, as, as the great, uh, there was a, a two Russian yeshivas, two leaders of, two deans of yeshivas, one of them would speak for 23 hours. And the other one, we speak for hours and hours. And the other one would, would give a lecture, would give for one hour. He says, what's the difference between me and my colleague? He says, my colleague thinks for an hour and he speaks for 23 hours. He says, I think for 23 hours and I speak for an hour. Mm-hmm. So when a person thinks, what you think a few minutes, it takes you much longer to express in words than what you're thinking. 
Another difference between thought and speech, you never stop thinking. You can't. You can't stop thinking. You can stop speaking. But thought is constant. (laughs) Even even, even Even when you're sleeping, you're thinking. You're dreaming. You don't stop. Because thought is connected to your soul. Just like your soul doesn't stop. You stop living, so you can't stop thinking. Speech, I can turn on, I can turn off. See, some people are Turn on, you turn off. I can stop speaking, I can close my lips, I can, I can, I can, I can listen. I can speak, I can stop. You don't speak constantly. Because thought is much more closer to the soul. Although thought, is thought like speech, is external to the soul. It's words. It's letters. Words are inert. Words and letters are dead. They're inert. They're just a container. They're just a vehicle. You can put whatever you want into the words. It can carry anything. You can carry junk. You can carry something. You can carry gold. You can carry whatever you want. Whatever you put in, it'll carry. I can use words to, to, to explain and to communicate and put into words the most refined feelings, the most subtle thoughts. Or I can use words to think the most disgusting word thing. It's the same word. Words are words. Words are just a vehicle. Whatever I put in, it will carry. It's a vehicle. It's a container. It's all it is. It has no life of its own. Words don't grow. Words are dead, inert. It has no content of its own. I can switch words. I can change words. You can't switch emotions. I love or I don't love. It's very difficult to switch emotions. I understand or I don't understand. It's real. You can't pretend Either I get it or I don't get it. If you get it, you get it. It's finished. You done. It's done. You get it. Two plus two is four. I can't understand the two plus two is five. I get it. I understand it. I can't understand otherwise. It's real. It's genuine. It's internal. It doesn't. It's not interchangeable. Speech and and thought is closed. It's called in the Kabbalah and Hasidism. It's called clothes. Just like clothes. You can change clothes. You can change clothes three times a day. I can, I can put on a dramatically a dramatic suit and I can put on an adult suit and I can change schmatter suits. I can, I can, I can wear... I, you can change. It's interchangeable. It's external. You can't change your hands. Okay, let me take off my hand and switch my hand today. <laughs> you know, I'm going to use another hand out of the closet. Let, let me switch my fingers. That's part of you. You can't change what's part of you. So just like you have part of your body, you can't change... So too, you have part of your internal body, your internal soul, your personality, your character. You can't change. It's not interchangeable. Your personality is your personality. Your character is your character. Your emotions are your emotions. Your, your comprehension is your comprehension. That doesn't change. It could, but that's very difficult to change. A liberal can turn into conservative. A conservative can turn into a liberal. A liberal that's mugged turns into becomes a conservative. So it, but it's very difficult to change because it's genuine. It's internal. It's real. But thought, speech, is external. I can change like a suit. I can turn on. I can take it off. I can take it on. I can use these words. I can use other words. I can think two plus two is five. I can think two plus two is three. You know, if, I, if, if, if I'm subjected to enough propaganda, I can say anything. I can think anything. I can say anything. So that's, that's external. Clothes are external. Words are external. Letters are external. And thought and speech. But nevertheless, within clothes itself, within, the, within that itself, clothes is much more eternal, internal. Clothes is very near to the soul. It's very near to the person. Just like the soul never stops, so too you never stop thinking. And, and thought is internal. I don't know what you think. Speech is external. 
You speak, everyone hears. <coughs> and you can stop speaking, you can stop, start speaking. So too. When we say that God creates the world through words, through letters, there's two types of creations. There's the creations through God's thoughts, so to speak, and God thinks, so to speak, that brings entities into cre- beings into, crea- in, into being. And when God speaks, He creates. So when God's words are in the level of thought, when the words and the letters of the ten utterances are on the level of thought, God brings into being the spiritual realms, the angels, the heaven, which is very close to God. They sense their source, just like thought, although thought is external. But thought is close to the soul. It's almost like an extension to the soul. Just like the soul doesn't stop, you can't stop thinking. It's more internal. So to the angels and the heavenly beings sense the source. They sense Godliness. That's why it's heavenly. It's blissful. It's illuminated. It's transparent. It's self-evident. They sense Godliness. And they're always connected with Godliness. And they're consciously connected with God. They're consciously aware of their source. They sense God. Constantly sense God. They're constantly singing and praising God. And they're constantly immersed and connected with God. Mm-hmm. Just like the fish in water. The fish is connected with its source. The fish leaves its source of life, it dies. It's immersed in its source, total immersion. So too, and, and, and they're hidden beings. You look at the surface of the ocean, you don't see that it's teeming with life. You don't see anything because they're swallowed up in their source. So too, when you look, when you look so to speak, at an angel, you look at a heavenly being, the heavenly being is like swallowed up in its source. It senses godliness. It's, it knows that it has a source. It senses its source. While our world, the material world, we come about through God's speech. When God speaks, just like when a person speaks, it's very external. It's one step further removed from the person. Therefore, a person could stop speaking. And speech is to the outsider, to the other person. And speech leaves you. Thought never leaves you. Thought is internal. But speech, once you speak, the other person receives it, it's gone. It's, 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 it's detached, it's objective. So too, God, through God's speech... God uh, brings down, it conveys from God's emotional attributes, it conveys and creates the physical entities, the physical entity of light. Not the spiritual entity of light or the divine entity of light, the heavenly entity of light. It brings the physical entity of light, physical water. Because when God speaks, He creates an entity that's external, that's totally separate from God, that's independent, that senses itself, it doesn't even sense its source doesn't even sense its source. Unlike the heavenly beings, when you look at a tree, you don't see its source. You don't see its divine source. Even, you, 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 even if you, you look at yourself, you know that you're alive. You sense your life, your energy, your life force. But you don't, you don't sense that it's divine source. You don't sense its divine connection. Life is a miracle. Only God has the power to create. But when you sense your life, you don't sense, wow, this is divine. He says, wow, I'm vital, I'm alive, I'm passionate. What does that have to do with God? That's the disconnect, because it's external. Because we are, as a result of God's speech, which is more removed and more external. Although the truth is that even God's speech is really, there is a speaker. You know that there is a speaker. The person who's listening 
you don't speak to a tree, you don't speak to a stone, you speak to someone who's on your level. And the person who's listening is, knows, yes, the speech leaves your mouth, and the speech leaves you, and you now has an independent being, and you can't take it back, has an independent reality, but nevertheless, there is a speaker. So even in speech, even though it's not like thought, you're not swallowed up, you're not immersed in your, in your source, but at least you know that there's a speaker. But then, what happened is that God concealed Himself to such an extent that we don't even sense that there's a speaker. We don't even sense that, that, that there's a speaker. So much so, that even the letters and the words became totally scrambled. It's like the equivalent of taking words and letters which are perfectly coherent. You see a word, it has a meaning. Take the same letters and scramble the letters. What do you have? Chaos. Meaningless. Gibberish. So God created an external existence that's, that's even further from God, but then God went another level and this world is like a riddle. This world is like a puzzle. It's meaningless. It's so far removed. If you have a word, you have something that's coherent, at least you know that there's a speaker. It makes sense. Someone is speaking, there's a coherency, there's a message. But then God scrambled the words and he scrambled the letters. And the world is like a riddle, a puzzle. You see this gibberish and you have to figure it out. How am I going to... What's the meaning? I don't see any meaning. I just see, I just see a lot of noise and uh, signifying nothing. My life, I go through my life, my life is fragmented and throughout the day I may do hundreds of things. I don't see the connection. What's the connection between the first thing I do in the morning to the last thing I do in the morning? I go through dozens of, uh, dozens of things that have no connection. Everything becomes so fragmented and this world becomes like a riddle. Is there a meaning? Is there, is there a coherent theme? Is there anyone, is there a source? Is there anyone speaking? Is there anyone, until, until you even doubt if there is a... The atheist even doubts and denies that there is a source and there is a God and there is a, um, a root and there is a, a, a meaning, a coherency, a theme, a purpose. So this is the concealment, the, the tzimtzumim, the, the tremendous amount of tzimtzumim and concealments that God took his words and he took it even a step further. He scrambled the words and he created a riddle and a puzzle and it becomes so hidden and so concealed and this is the mission of a Jew we have to do the, we have to figure out the puzzle. We have to find, we have to, we have to, do the, we have to break the code. We have, to do, we have to do the crossword puzzle. We have, to, we have to figure it out and put all the letters together and find, find the coherency and find the meaning and find the purpose through Torah and mitzvot. We discern and detect and discover, oh, here's a word, here's a meaning, here's a purpose. This is how you put it together. This is what it's all about. We have to, right, we have to scramble, at least scramble the code. We are, we are the code breakers. We are, we are um, and that's the, that's the task of a Jew, that's the mission of a Jew. To reveal, bring it back to its source. Bring everything back to its source. Well, suddenly, now you have a coherent word. When a Jew does a mitzvah, now you have a word. Hashem spoke, He gave us a commandment. And when you take that physical object and you fulfill that commandment with it, now suddenly you have a word, you have coherency, you have meaning. Now it all makes sense. Now it all comes together. There's a speaker, there's a connection. Now it comes alive. Now it has meaning. Otherwise it's just a fragmented, concealed, 
hidden, pointless, meaningless, chaos on the surface. And that's really the mission of a Jew. So God spoke and the world came into being. God spoke in words and letters and that externalizes the world. That creates the external world and the revealed world. Just like speech reveals what's going on inside versus thought, which is internal and hidden, which, with which God creates, through God's thoughts, God creates the hidden worlds, the concealed worlds, the divine worlds, the, 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 the heavenly worlds, the heavenly realms, the hidden realms, the abstract realms. And then through the external, through speech, God created the revealed world, just like speech reveals what's going on inside. God created the revealed world. And then ultimately... God even took it a step further, which he discusses elsewhere through the Tzimtzumim. At least when there's a speaker, at least you know that there's someone speaking. Where it became so disconnected, so divorced from its source, from its reality, you don't even realize it's a speaker. You don't even see a word. You don't even see any coherency. You don't see any meaning. You just see a scrambled gibberish. Not just that. If we're supposed to unlock the code, who suffered more than the Jew? That's the ultimate... That, that's, well, that's, that's, part of the, that's part of the riddle. That's, part all, of the, that's all part of the puzzle. So that, that's yeah. all part of the riddle. Um, Simpson is when God contracts himself, is that right? Yes, Simpson. God contracts himself, concentrates himself, contracts himself, hides, conceals. That is also part of the riddle. Because again, it's not what it appears to be. Mm. Anti-Semitism... The answer to anti-Semitism is found within anti-Semitism. What does anti-Semitism prove to us or show us? Because the Jew has the power to unite the world like no one else. We have the power to concentrate the world's attention like no one else. So that's the answer. How are you going to use that ability? Are you going to unite yourself? Are you going to be divine? Are you going to be godly? Are you going to put the words together? And then the whole world will come together. The whole world will become coherent. The whole world will elevate human consciousness. You'll transform and revolutionize human consciousness. If you are coherent, if you are crystal clear, if you are moving in the right direction, if every Jew in the world did one more mitzvah, Mashiach would be in a second. We revolutionize human consciousness. We'll all come together in a split second today, this moment. It's so doable, so simple. If every Jew did one baby step, one tiny mitzvah, more than we were doing yesterday, from the greatest Jew to the smallest Jew, Mashiach would be here today. It's that simple. It's mind-boggling. It's so doable. It's so practical. It's, so, it's right here in front of our eyes. Open your eyes, Rebbe. It's right here. You have the key. Unlock the door. You're right here. Just cross the threshold. Unlock the door. It's all there. You have all the tools. You have everything. Everything is ready. Everyone is hooked up. Everyone is wired. Everyone is connected. It's all there. It's up to us. Every one of us. Together. But you say that I mean, now we have the opportunity, but maybe at other times, even though I know the temple and so on, this is right because of our issues it seemed like we didn't really have the power we oh, had a, you know it would have been miraculous and, and yes practice it you know great we, we had always had we always had the ability yeah. but then it would have been a total miracle oh i see and so what so it could have, it should have been a miracle but but now we see we have the ability like never before right. i mean what we take for granted is a miracle yeah. television is not a miracle if someone told a thousand years ago that you're sitting in New York and I, I can see what's going on in Moscow, it's a miracle. Who can see? I can see, I'm sitting here and I can see what's going on in Moscow. It's a miracle. I can hear someone thousands of miles away. We take it for granted. It's a miracle. So today all these miracles are... are, 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 are if anyone had a doubt, the concept, you know, 
It was a great tzaddik, the Chayzeh of Lublin. The Chayzeh was able to see miles away. Physically, he was able to see what's going on. The Baal if he came to Baal he was able to see anywhere in the world what's going on with his eyes and all the Rebbe's. But, but now we have television and radio and internet. And today, you have, today we have the navigation guys, you know, in your car. What's it called? The GP, yes. GPS. So if, if you're on the wrong track, suddenly from heaven you get a voice. <laughs> turn right, turn left. It's like Hashem is guiding us. You know, the whole concept that Hashem is watching us and Hashem is guiding us. And divine providence and the eye that sees and the ear that hears. Hashem sees every action, every move that we make. Everything is recorded. Everything registers. Everything matters to Hashem. Hashem is deeply involved, personally involved in every step of our life and every detail in our life to the tiniest detail. And if, if we go, go off track, Hashem suddenly sends a GPS or whatever it takes and, or a cast and puts you back in the right direction. You know. So it, it, it's amazing. So these are all miracles. You're right. Now the world is ready. Now the world is it's so open. It's so, you just have to open your eyes and realize the truths and the realities. So we Jews have more power to, to like make a choice. Like we ne- didn't have right. power. Like never before. And the world is hungry. The world is eager. The whole world is eager, eager for the Jew to step, step up to the plate and take leadership role. From Madonna on down, all the Goyim want, want to be Jewish, mm-hmm. want to connect to something Jewish. They're just waiting for the Jew to take the leadership role and to act like leaders. Waiting for Israel to act like leaders. The Jew. To take charge, take the bull by the horn and, 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 and live up to their potential and act, be the leaders of the world, the spiritual leaders of the world. And so it's all up to us. And now, it's, now you can see it. It's right. It's not a question of faith anymore. A hundred years ago, it was a question of faith. You're right. And the shtetl, to believe Mashiach can come, was pure faith. Well, they were doing the mitzvah, but again, they... It was pure they, faith. Listen, Hashem could do anything. It would have been a divine miracle. Now that, how, will, how would the Jews in Poland know the Mashiach came in Russia? There was no way of communication. How, it would take a month <laughs> to get the news. So what, the whole thing would have to be miraculous. Today, one split second, everyone is wired, everyone is hooked up. Just in case not, everyone has their phones and their PDFs and their beepers and their, and their instant... Uh, instant uh, Blackberry. Blackberry. So every, everything is in place. Now Mashiach will come in one split second. Everyone will know, everyone, will be here. everyone is ready. So now it's, you can see it, it's reality. For example, God makes some miracles to some person. Is it because of the rightness or is it because of the, the merit of the... Well, that's a very good question. Um, the question is asked, what right does a Jew have to pray? Hashem, I need a healing. Please heal me. Hashem, my business is going bankrupt. Please help me. We know who we are. We know that we're not worthy. That we are worthy or we're not worthy. What right do we have to come from Hashem? Obviously, if this is happening to me, maybe I'm not worthy of a blessing or such a, 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 I'm asking Hashem for a miracle. Am I worthy of a miracle? It's almost chutzpah. What right do I have to stand for Hashem? Heal me. You're not ashamed? You know what you did yesterday and the day before. You were selfish. You were self-centered. You were disgusting and horrible. You never have time for me. You never come to shul. You never learn. You never daven. You never put a, do a mitzvah. You have no time. You're so busy. All of a sudden, now you want a miracle. Oh, hello. Now you found me. I mean, well, I mean it's almost chutzpah. Well, oh, okay. But, so the commentators say, no. Because if you believe in Hashem, you also have to believe in Hashem's mercy. Hashem could do a kindness even if we're not worthy. Don't limit Hashem. Don't put Hashem in a straitjacket. Hashem likes to do good. And He likes to do good even if we're not worthy. 
So don't limit Hashem. Hashem can only do good only if we're worthy. No, and if we're not worthy, Hashem can do us a kind of thing. So miracles can either happen because we're worthy. It can happen, like you say, because of the merit of our ancestors, of our parents. We're living off the interest of our parents and grandparents and great-grandparents. Or it can happen because Hashem has Rachmanus. He's our father. And we're his little baby. His only child. Every Jew is his only child. And he loves us beyond description. Every one of us. From the best, from the worst to the best. And he just loves to do kindness. So it could be an act of pure love. And we have to receive it and welcome it and thank Hashem. And maybe, of course, after we have such a blessing, if Hashem blesses us, we should show some appreciation and get our act together and start living a little more godly life, a little more divine life. So we could actually be more worthy than we think we are. I mean, in doing mitzvahs and things like that. Because we always have a feeling we're not doing enough, which in reality is true, but... It could be that some of us are doing It's a very, very wise statement. We're a very wise man. Sometimes, sometimes you f- it feels like Hashem demands 500%. And he gets 100%. Hashem demands so much from us. Because uh, He has faith in us. That's why Judaism is so pushy. Hashem is so demanding. Because He has faith in us. He knows we can do much more than we ever imagined. So he's constantly pushing us and demanding more, demand more of yourself. But sometimes, maybe Hashem is really demanding 500%, and he's getting 100%. Because as this great Shpola Zaydi, the great Hasidic master once said, he says, he turns to God, he says, if I did not see with my own eyes a Jew doing a mitzvah today, I could not believe it. This was, this was 200 years ago. He says, the world is so dark, and it's so difficult. And if I did not see a Jew pick himself up and do a mitzvah, so for that alone you should bring Mashiach. If that was true 200 years ago, how much truer is that today? When the distractions, 24-7, 500 television stations, and 24-7, and the, and the garbage and the junk that's out there. You were telling us also on the... That's, that's the positive. So... Um, the fact that a Jew is able to overcome all these distractions and this sometimes very hostile environment, an environment that's very hostile to anything spiritual or wholesome or godly or genuine or good or deep or real, everything is so artificial, everything is so superficial, everything is so external, so egotistical, so it's almost a place that only snakes and scorpions could feel at home, not, not, not a human being. Um, and yet, within that environment, a Jew goes forward, forges ahead, and does a mitzvah, and studies Torah, and grows, and moves forward. This is tremendous. And Hashem appreciates it immensely. There was once a the group of the Alter Rebbe's Hasidim. And there was a very Hasidic uh, community, a very Hasidic synagogue. And there was a Jew there, he was like the playboy of the town. He was a real bum. And the Jews... You know, the Hasidim tried to bring him closer, made him feel at home and shul. And one of them asked the Rebbe, you know, years went by, and, and they didn't see any change, didn't see any improvement, you know. He enjoyed hanging out there, but then he would go at night and have fun. And, um, and he said, what's, like, what are they, what's the point? Should they continue to try to bring him close? They don't see any results. So the Rebbe answered, listen to his answer. He said, the author of this Tanya that we're learning, the Rebbe said, if this Jew thought 
10 negative thoughts a day. And as a result of you bringing them closer, instead of 10 negative thoughts, he only thinks 9 negative thoughts. You can't begin to imagine the infinite pleasure, the undefined pleasure that that gives to Hashem. You can't fathom. You can't even begin to understand the infinite pleasure, how much pleasure Hashem takes that this Jew, instead of doing ten negative things a day, only did nine negative things. He was able to overcome. was able to break his ego a drop, a little. able to overcome his negativity. Just a drop, just a baby step. You can hardly even detect it. We can't detect it, but Hashem detects it. And Hashem's infinite wisdom, Hashem's infinite reality, it's infinitely worth it. It's beyond description. And that gives Hashem infinite pleasure. So continue to be Makarov and continue to bring them closer. Because we don't measure these things. We don't know how to measure these things. The smallest movement in this world, as Al-Tarebi writes elsewhere in the Tanya, is like the sun. When we see the sun make a tiny movement from one place to another place, when the light of the sun shifts in the course of the day, do you know how many millions of miles the sun has to move in heaven? to make that slightest movement on the sundial. The sun in heaven moves millions of miles. But in this world, it, it shows up, all you detect is a tiny, slight shift, a slight movement in the sundial. The same thing is vice versa. The tiniest movement in this world, one positive thought, one positive speech, one positive good deed, or the ability to overcome, instead of thinking a negative thought, ten negative thoughts, you only did nine negative thoughts, you can't begin to imagine the impact that that has in the heavens, in the spiritual spheres, in the divine spheres. To Hashem Himself. It gives Hashem infinite pleasure. We don't know how to measure this. But we are the center of the universe. Everything that we do has such an impact beyond our imagination. Only Hashem knows how to judge and to evaluate. You're right. Only Hashem knows how to evaluate the real worth. Sometimes we do, we do a small thing, we think it's small. And to Hashem it's unbelievable. Sometimes we think we do a big thing and Tashem it's nothing. <laughs> you know, we don't know how to evaluate these things. Sometimes one mitzvah compares versus 30 negative things because it took sacrifice to do the mitzvah. It was, it was, it was genuine. It was from the heart. And some, so we, we don't know how to measure these things. It's not a quantity thing. It's a quality thing. And every individual is different. So we, we really don't know what's going on inside. Never judge a book by its cover. Someone, it was a woman from Canada when the previous Lubavitcher Rebbe came to America in 1940 and she was very supportive of his institutions in Montreal but she was not religious not observant and a few, a few, one time she had a private audience with the previous Rebbe and she says you know Rebbe I'm embarrassed but you know you, you know I'm not from I'm not, I'm, not, I'm not religious I'm not from the previous Rebbe says my daughter daughter my daughter you know, says, We don't know who's from. Who, who, knows what's, who knows how Hashem looks at a person? Who knows what's going on inside? What's really going on inside? Sometimes a person could be on the facade, he's very religious and very from, but inside there's nothing there. There's nobody home. Garnish. It's a facade, garnish. It's just an act. It's just external, it's just conforming, just, just dead, soulless, passionless, no life, no care, no relationship, no love for Hashem, no. It's just meaningless. And then you have a Jew who, you know, did one thing, but it's so genuine, it's so from the heart, it's so pure, it's so real. So who knows? Who knows how we judge these things? Never. 
Only Hashem knows how to evaluate. So you're right. And that's why a Jew is obligated to view himself every day of the year, every moment, to view himself and the whole world as being on an equal scale. And by each and every one of us doing one more mitzvah, we have to believe that that's the mitzvah that can tip the scale. That's the mitzvah that can bring Mashiach. It could be the tiniest thing. Because when the scale is equal, all it takes to tip the scale is one tiny pebble and you tip the scale. It could be a huge scale. But when it's totally equal, you just add the tiniest pebble and the whole scale shifts. So by us making the slightest movement forward, a positive thought, a positive attitude, a hopeful thought, a hopeful attitude, trusting thought, a loving thought, or by saying a loving word, a kind word, instead of saying something negative, saying something positive, something encouraging to another person, giving another person a smile, doing the smallest, giving another person a penny, doing the smallest, smallest thing. This, you have to believe that this can be the last mitzvah, the final mitzvah, on top of all the other mitzvahs, that this will tip the scale and you will be the one that's single-handedly responsible for bringing Mashiach. Can you imagine if 14 million Jews, if every one of us, every Jew living in the Upper East Side lived with that thought every day of the year, every day of the week, that I can be the one to close the deal and bring Mashiach for every Jew that ever lived and every Jew that ever will live? For all of history, for all eternity, I could be the hero, I could be the one. And what do I have to do? Nothing, nothing earth shattering. The tiniest movement, the smallest mitzvah. That was the Rebbe's message. That's the mitzvah, that's the Mashiach campaign. That to get every Jew to live with this, with this thought. And then if every Jew will make one baby step forward with the merits of our parents, our ancestors, but we will be the one who will close the deal. We will be the one who will create that critical mass. In science, you know, you have to create, you have to reach a point of critical mass. Things could be building up and building up, and then you just a tiniest movement forward, and suddenly critical mass, and it spreads like wildfire, and it's unstoppable. It's like you're climbing, you're climbing, and then suddenly you just go over the tip, and then you're unstoppable. And then Mashiach comes, and we're 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 right there. There always was a potential, but now it's beyond potential. Now it's reality. Now it's going to happen any split second. We are going to live to see the rebuilding of the third temple. There always was. There always was. But we're beyond that. We're much more than that. This is not just another potential and God forbid Mashiach will come in the next generation. Mashiach is coming. It's all ready. Everything is ready. It's going to happen in a split second. And any one of us could be the one who can... Push it over the over the. What makes our generation generation Mashiach? How is it possible? You're asking how is it that the generation of the Bosham to? We have to ask Hashem. I don't know why, but but because we are the lowest generation, or we are the bottom of the feet. But you know, the bottom of the feet can actually it can, can go can go places no one else can go. When the head wants to go to the library, it needs a healthy soul to take it there. So we need good souls in the feet. We are the souls of the feet. We are the lowest generation, the last generation, but we are the ones who are going to carry the whole body. We are the ones who are going to lead the whole organism. Because it says, when God showed Moshe Rabbeinu, this is the answer to your question, and I will stop here. It says, Moshe was the most humble Jew that ever lived. Why was he so humble? It says, God showed him all future generations. And he was especially humble when he looked at our generation. He was totally humble. Moshe was humbled for our generation. The lowest generation of Jews. The midgets of the midgets of the midgets. Moshe, the giant of the giant of the giant, 
felt totally humbled to our generation. Why was he so overwhelmed? God showed him our generation. Because for 3,800 years, a Jew had an ulterior motive to be Jewish. He had no choice. You were a Christian, you were Muslim, you were Jewish. He saw miracles. God took you out of Egypt. Uh, of course you were Jewish. But he looked at our generation. After being in exile for close to 2,000 years, after Holocaust and pogroms and assimilation, even the streets in America were treif, were not kosher. With people threw tefillin overboard on the way to America, where it was impossible to keep Shabbos, so people convinced themselves it was impossible. It was very difficult to keep Shabbos. And it was so easy to assimilate. And it was a melting pot. And you have no ulterior motive to be Jewish. Why, why stand that? On the contrary, you have every ulterior motive to melt and disappear. You're accepted as an equal. And we haven't seen God in 2,000 years. And yet, hundreds of thousands of Jews without any ulterior motive, without even the benefit of a Jewish education, on their own, have come back to Yiddishkeit. Moshe was floored. He started crying. He says, this is, this is the greatest generation of Jews. That's why they're the ones who are going to lead the whole Jewish people, including Moshe himself, who's stuck in the desert. We are going to be the ones who are going to lead him into the land of Israel. Because our generation proves that what began with Abraham was genuine. It wasn't conditional, a certain milieu, a certain environment. Take the same Jew and put him in an environment, an atheistic environment, a materialistic environment, an environment, a post-Holocaust environment, an environment that's totally cut off, an environment with aggressive atheism, whether it's communism or, 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 or Western materialism. And take this Jew and this the university, which is aggressively atheistic, insulting and humiliatingly anti and Take, put a Jew in such an environment and look 70 years after communism 80 years after communism Judaism is flourishing like never before all over the world Judaism is flourishing Jews feel at home everywhere in the world it's flourishing, it's growing, it's thriving the greatest renaissance of Jewish life we haven't seen in millennium, thousands of years this proves that the Jew is eternal the Torah is eternal, God is eternal our relationship to God, our marriage to God is eternal so we vindicate the Jewish experience we vindicate that the sacrifice of our ancestors was not in vain. That the, that the life that they lived was not external or because they had a certain education or because they dressed a certain way or because they lived in a very religious environment. Take the Jew out of that environment and put him in the 21st century with all the Meshagas that's going on around us and the syrupy, superficial, skin-deep, distorted junk life that we're all exposed to every day and yet even in such an environment on their own without any external prompting without any ulterior motive on their own hundreds of thousands of young Jews have reconnected to their core to their essence to their Yiddishkeit to their Pintaliyid that's why our generation now, is going to be the one it's written that the world can only exist 6,000 years I don't know where it's written yes in the Talmud yes. in the Talmud okay now, how do we know that it's not going to happen closer to 6,000 years? <laughs> we're already... We're already 5, 7, something, 6, 40. Well, a lot has to happen before the year 6,000. Firstly, Mashiach has to come. Secondly, afterwards, there's going to be the resurrection of the dead. All of this has to happen in the next 234 years. Mashiach is supposed to be a reward. So... Let's figure this out. We're in exile for 2,000 years. Just this current exile. 
And we never really recovered from the first exile. So we really were in exile from the destruction of the first temple or the, or the, the dispersion of the, of the ten tribes. So we're in exile for, for close to 3,000 years. And you're telling me that the reward is going to be for a minute, for a day. Because as it is, there's no time left. Mashiach has to come. Then 40 years later to be the resurrection. Then comes the year 6,000. So he's saying all this tremendous sacrifice and all this tremendous effort and all this tremendous heroic work of all the tzaddikim and all the Jewish people and all our ancestors who went through fire and water, who were faithful and loyal to God through pogroms and inquisitions and all of this. Hashem is going to say, oh, okay, I have one minute left. Okay, here's a little reward. Goodbye. Mashiach is late. He's way, way, way over there. As a matter of fact, the Talmudic rabbis and their wildest nightmares there's not a single rabbi, there's not a single deadline at this late date. They all passed long ago, because in the, in the worst nightmares, no tzaddik, no prophet, no individual could even imagine that so late in Jewish history we'll still be in exile. The temple will still not be rebuilt. Mashiach will still not come. It's beyond belief. Mashiach is so overdue. The baby is so overdue. The mother is so overdue that it's not even funny. So it's no question. We are moments before Shabbos. We are seconds away from Mashiach. All the signs have been fulfilled. All the great rabbis of the last hundred years have said, if you open your eyes and open your ears, you'll see that Mashiach is imminent. Any moment, any second. We are the generation. This is it. So there's no question. This is it. But we have to put our finger in the fast-forward button, not be passive observers. We are participants. By doing that one mitzvah, every one of us could be the one to close the deal. Like the story, we'll conclude with this, the story of the Tzemach Tzedek. The Tzemach Tzedek, the third Lubavitcher Rebbe, the grandchild of the, the Balatanya, once told his Hasidim, he says, Mashiach is ready to come. But he's waiting for the last Jew to do that last mitzvah. The Hasidim said, Rebbe, tell us where that Jew is. We'll run to Australia, we'll go to the end of the world, we'll let that Jew do that last mitzvah and clinch the deal and put an end to, to Yiddish Tzaras. It was 150 years ago, so the Rebbe said, the Rebbe smiled. He looked at the chassid and he said, maybe it's you. <laughs> so if every one of us live with that thought, then we can close the deal. Mashiach will materialize tonight, and next week's class will be given by the Alter Rebbe himself on the Upper East Side of Yerushalayim. Lessons in Tanya, taught by Rabbi Ben Zion Krasniansky. For more Tanya study, please visit our website at www.lessonsintanya.com.